right, good morning, church family. For those of you who don't know me, my name's Drew. I'm excited to be back with you guys this morning. It's been a few weeks since I've been up here teaching the Bible, which I love to do. I'm super thankful for our young teachers who did such a good job in my absence, Tony and Colin. Didn't they do an awesome job teaching the Bible? So this morning, we're picking back up in 1 Corinthians in chapter 10. And throughout 1 Corinthians, Paul has been writing to a young church who is tempted to use Christianity as an excuse to live however they want to live. So they had come to Christ, they'd been excited about their commitment to him, but then their tendency was to drift back into their old ways of living. And so Paul's writing this letter to them to remind them of the commitment that they've made to Jesus because of the love that he's shown them on the cross. And he's dealing with an interesting aspect of their commitment to Jesus that we don't normally give a lot of thought to, and that is the sacraments. Now, mostly he's dealing with the sacrament of communion in this text. And here's basically what their mindset was toward communion. I'm gonna live however I want during the week, and then I'm going to come to church on Sunday, and I'm gonna take communion, and it's going to absolve me of my sin. And then I'm gonna be like, whoo, thank goodness. I'm clean, I'm good. Now I'm gonna go back to living however I want to live again. And then the next time we do communion at church, I'm gonna absolve myself of my sin again, and I'm gonna be good. And then I'm gonna go back to living however I want to live. And Paul is warning them against this type of thinking with any religious observance that they do. And he declares to them the true purpose of communion, religious observance, and every other sacrament that they participate in. And this is what he says in this text, is that sacraments are meant to remind us to fight temptation with all of our might. They're not meant to just absolve us of our sin so that we can live however we want. They're meant to remind us to re-engage in our relationship with Jesus in such a way that we reaffirm our commitment to him and we go into Monday morning with a fight to be in his word, to run away from idolatry and sexual immorality and to live fully for him. So he gives us three warnings in the text. The first warning is to beware of presumption. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we're looking at verses 1 through 7 to start. He says, For I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. 
Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. So Paul is reflecting back on the book of Exodus, which we studied not too long ago as part of our regular diet in God's word. And you'll remember that in the book of Exodus, God was performing miraculous signs. And one of the famous miraculous signs in the book of Exodus is that the people of Israel walked through the Red Sea on dry ground. And Paul is saying that this was for the people of Israel like our baptism. It was a reminder to them of God's mighty rescue. And so what they were meant to do as a result of this baptism was live with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength for God in all of their life. Their baptism was a symbol that pointed them to the faithfulness of God. He also says that God's provided for them spiritual food. So you remember manna, this bread-like substance, was falling from the sky. And God was providing for them something to eat. And he was also providing for them something to drink. Moses struck a rock and water gushed out and the people of Israel drank that. And he's saying this is analogous to our experience of communion. And for them, what they were supposed to do as a result of God's provision is they were supposed to live thankful lives honoring him. But instead, they thought, look, God loves me. God is for me. God doesn't have anything against me. And instead of concluding, therefore, I'm going to live my life for him, they concluded, therefore, I can do whatever I want. Remember, Moses is up on the mountain getting the Ten Commandments from God. And while he's doing that, They have a raucous party at the base of the mountain where they're participating in every sort of immorality possible. And Paul's warning to us is, listen, they went to church. They got baptized. They took communion. And they were not saved. It is possible to be here Sunday after Sunday. It is possible to take communion and be baptized and attend connection group and never give your heart to Jesus. And instead of being reminded of your commitment to Jesus in those things, to instead, in your own heart and mind, Use them as a license to do whatever you want to do. And Paul says, look back at these Old Testament stories, look at these people, and see this one plain fact. God was not pleased. And as a result of God not being pleased with them, God punished them. God is not the God of American Christianity who will just forgive you no matter 
what you do and how you live. God is the God of the Bible. He is a God of forgiveness. He is also a God of justice. And if you think that you can trick him, you're wrong. That's why this passage is in the Bible. So here's what we can be like when we use the symbols of Christianity as an excuse to sin in whatever way we choose. We are like a spouse who is caught in the act of adultery and says, hey, it's okay. I've got my wedding ring on. I'm committed to you. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I was doing that. Yeah, I was betraying you and being unfaithful to you. But my wedding ring is still on. Don't you see that using this symbol, which is meant to say, I have committed my entire life to you, I've made vows to you, I will never leave you or forsake you, as an excuse to do whatever you want, doesn't provide an excuse, it just deepens the offense. So if you are not committed to Jesus, I would say, stop coming to church. Like bail on this whole thing. Because you're just making hell hotter for yourself. God is a just God. Yes, God is a loving God. But he will not be mocked. And the sacraments are meant for us to say to him, I love you. I'm committed to you. I'm going to follow after you. I'm going to double down this week. I'm not going to live however I want to live. Hey, you might not be able to hear this from Paul. You might not be able to hear this from me. But hear this from Jesus' own lips. In Revelation chapter 3, 15 through 16, he says this to a presumptuous people. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. He says, I'd rather have you at church fully committed to me and chasing after me with all of your might, or not going at all, than in this place of presumption. So beware of presumption. The second thing that Paul warns this church, and by extension us, to do, is to flee from idolatry. Look at 1 Corinthians 10, 8 through 14. It says, we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happen to them as an example 
but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to a sensible people, judge for yourself what I say. So there were a couple different ways that the Corinthian church was specifically rebelling against Jesus throughout the week. This is the form that their presumption was taking. Number one was sexual immorality. They were known for having sex with unbelieving women in their community, visiting the temple prostitutes. And Paul reminds them of what happened when Israel was doing the same thing. And he says this crazy sentence. As a result of their sexual immorality, 23,000 of them fell in a single day. Died. You want to know what God thinks about sexual immorality and his tolerance for it? Look at that. He hates it. And that was written down for our instruction. No one who is sexually immoral will enter the kingdom of God. So be warned by that to flee away from it. The second thing he says that the Israelites were doing, and by extension the Corinthians were doing, and by the way we do too, is they were putting Christ to the test. We see this in their being unthankful for God's provision for them and their longing to go back to Egypt. It was this thought in their mind that it would have been better had we not been saved so that we could have our old life back. So instead of a spirit of thankfulness, he says that they had given into a spirit of grumbling. They were just kind of mad that they were God's people. And this was leading them to all sorts of other kinds of sin. In Romans 1, it says that our refusal to give thanks to God results in our foolish hearts being darkened and us giving ourselves away toward all different types of sin. And he says, this is kind of crazy because we don't really, we put sexual immorality, I think, in the bad, naughty list. Like, we understand that that's wrong. And we feel the warning of 23,000 people fell in a single day. He says, some of them grumbled and were destroyed by the destroyer. God got so tired of them complaining that he sent a destroying angel 
throughout the camp to kill people. And we think, ah, what's the big deal? So I'm a little unthankful, so I'm kind of grumbling. And Paul warns us that those things were written for our instruction so that we wake up and run away from those type of attitudes which lead to deeper and darker sins. Okay, so what should our response be? So I was actually studying this passage in my basement. And as I'm studying this specific passage, trying to think of an illustration for this specific point, one of my kids came down the stairs and was grumbling to my wife about something. Imagine that, a kid grumbling, complaining. And I took the opportunity to give some biblical instruction. And so I said, hey, do you know what I'm reading right now? And I, I literally read this text. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. And I said, do you know what God did to people in the Old Testament who grumbled? And I said, he killed them. (laughs) And this child just looks at me and goes, that's intense. (laughs) And completely stopped grumbling. Like just totally forgot about whatever it was that they were complaining about. And I was like, I actually said to them, that's my illustration. Thank you. Because that is a perfect response. Like, it's not that we understand this. Like, who is this God? No one could ever make this God up. He's too intense. But what are we supposed to do? It's supposed to shake us out of our complacency and presumption and unthankfulness and make us realize that there is something bigger than us to live for and our small complaints that we have about the life that God has blessed us with. And so instead of going down this path, like this intellectual kind of apologetics path of like, how can the God of the Old Testament do these types of things? Maybe we should just be like, I'm an idiot. I need to stop acting the way that I'm acting. And maybe it makes total sense that God's doing what he's doing. And what doesn't make sense is what I'm doing. And so Paul says, our opportunity in all of this is to flee from idolatry. So there's basically two types of people that I think he has in mind when he shares with us maybe the most famous verse from this passage where he says, no temptation has overtaken you that is common to man. God is faithful and will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. I think he has in mind the person, yes, who's presumptuous and thinks, yeah, I can do whatever I want. And he's saying, no, you need to take heed. In other words, wake up and flee from temptation. 
But I think he also has in mind the person this morning who feels overwhelmed by the onslaught of temptation and feels like they are losing the battle against sexual immorality or grumbling, unthankfulness, and feels like I can't possibly overcome this. And he is saying to us, God is faithful. He's patient with you. He is providing a way of escape. He loves you. He wants what's best for you. He is not just making this pronouncement from the top of a mountain where he's saying, well, you better be faithful to me or I'm going to get you. He's saying, listen, I love you. I'm here with you. I want to help you. And the reason that what you're doing is so offensive to me is because I've always been willing to help you escape. And so what we need, I don't want you guys to think, okay, now I'm going to make a commitment and I'm going to try as hard as I can and I'm going to do this. I'm going to overcome this temptation. The way forward for all of us is humility. It's to say, I can't do this. My track record has not been one of faithfulness. My track record's been one of presumption. And I need God to be faithful. And so it is to get on our knees each day and to cry out to him and say, would you do in me what has been impossible for me to do for you? God is faithful. We are not. So that's sort of the negative side of this. Okay, beware of presumption, flee from idolatry. Okay, it's not just a negative though. It's not just don't do this. He gives us this grand positive, this vision for all of our lives. What are we to be living for? What is my purpose? It is to love God and others. Look at verses 21 through 33. He says, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things built up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I gave thanks. So, whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Okay, so here is the whole positive Christian ethic applied to one situation. So we've seen this particular situation over and over again 
in the book of 1 Corinthians so far. Meat sacrificed to idols. The church is asking the question, what do we do when meat has been sacrificed to idols? Paul makes very clear, you cannot take the cup of God, in other words, participate in a love relationship with God expressed through communion and participate with idols. Their question is, but what if someone serves me meat that has been sacrificed to an idol, which in my former life before I came to Christ was the way that I did participate with idols and show my devotion to them? Paul says, if your host says, this meat has been sacrificed to idols, isn't that awesome? Then you should not eat it because... That is the most loving thing to do for your host, to show them the devotion and love that you have for Jesus. It's an opportunity to share the gospel with them. But if your host says nothing and just gives you meat that you know has been sacrificed to idols but doesn't make a big deal about it, then just eat it because that provides the best opportunity for you to share about Jesus with your host. The way that Paul came to this conclusion about this specific situation is he says, my aim, whether I eat or drink or whatever I do in my life, is to put the spotlight on how great God is. And he thinks that what most puts the spotlight on how great God is, is when we set aside our own preferences and instead seek the good of people around us. And the ultimate good that we seek for those around us in this city is that they, like us, would bow the knee to King Jesus. That they would see that he is where life is found. So far from living with no conscience at all and just fully participating in our culture of sexual immorality and ungratefulness and individualism where I just look inside of myself and say, whatever I want goes, we are to live with a reformed conscience, the conscience of Jesus, where we seek to lay down our very lives and preferences for the good of others. That feels hard for each of us individually as we walk through our daily existence, but when it is lived out for our benefit, we all have experienced it as one of the most beautiful things in the world. It is an indication to this world, that there is a love that is greater than the universe. Have you ever experienced the love of a Christian putting aside their preferences for your benefit? One example came to mind for me. I was on a trip for pastors, and there were host families who were hosting each of us as pastors. I had just been diagnosed with an autoimmune disease, and I was trying to figure out 
how to beat that disease. I wasn't on medication yet, and so I was on a super strict autoimmune protocol diet, which was terrible. And so I had way more things on the list of things that I could not eat than the list of things that I could eat. And so I was talking to our host about this because he was very gracious and was seeking to serve us. And he's like, what do you guys want for breakfast tomorrow? And I said, well, there's basically almost nothing that I can eat. And I said, I'm, I mean, honestly, I'm probably going to eat a sweet potato tomorrow and drink a cup of tea. And he's like, all right. So we go to bed and and I wake up the next morning, and I come to the table, and I look at the three plates. So Jordan Adams was staying in the same room with me. He was probably kind of mad about this, but anyway. <laughs> there's, there are three plates, and each plate has a large sweet potato on it and a cup of tea. And this dear Christian brother looks at me, he prays, and then he looks at me, and I'll never forget this, he says, we are eating in solidarity with you this morning. And I could have just cried. I'm just like, that is so beautiful. And Paul is calling us to that type of intentional love with the people around us. Not so they look at us and say, wow, You are amazing. But so that they can see through our love to Jesus and say, where did you get this kind of hope and love? Where you would care way more about me than you care about yourself or your own preferences. So it turns out that fleeing from idolatry doesn't lead you to a less full life where you have nothing. It leads you to the most full life possible because you were designed by God to live for his glory and to love others. And you will never be satisfied in your life until instead of holding on to your life, you give it away. Look at the most honored person in human history, Jesus Christ. Without a doubt, he is the most beloved person to ever live. Why? Because he did not live for himself. He lived for others. And that is most clearly demonstrated for us on the cross where he put aside every preference that he had. He put aside his very life. He had nails driven through his hands and through his feet. He was forsaken by God on our behalf. And he looked at all of humanity. He looked at all of us in our idolatry, in our unfaithfulness to him. And he said, Father, forgive them They don't know what they're doing. We love him because he first loved us. So let's put aside the religious 
facade. And let's give our hearts fully to him as he has given himself fully to us. Let's pray. Jesus, we are often half-hearted. We are often hearing from your word, worshiping you on Sunday, and living in opposition to you during the week. Would you shake us from our presumption? Would we experience even the warnings of this text as love from a devoted spouse instead of as pronouncements from a judge? Would we see that you are jealous for us to chase after you because that is the only place where satisfaction is found? God, I ask that you would bother us until we give ourselves to you. Would you win? Defeat our stubborn wills so that we can be the people that you want us to be and to be the people that we as Christians most deeply want to be. Pray this all in Jesus' name.